fellow music nerds. Welcome to Season 2 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. Welcome back, I should say. It's been a long break, which I deeply apologize for, although not so much because... You know, I just got to make a living sometimes. So it's been a busy, busy fall and, and winter, and I just had to um, put the podcast on hold for a while. And so I thank you for sticking with me and letting me take my little sabbatical. And now I'm going to get back to the last chapter of season two, which is going to be six more episodes, bringing us up to 52 interviews in total. Before we get going here, I need to reach out and ask for some help in keeping this podcast up and running. So far, I've been relying on one-time donations from all of you to help me with the show's overhead, which is much appreciated from all of those who've contributed, and you can still do that. But I've set up a new way that you can be an ongoing supporter of music makers and soul shakers. Over these final six episodes of season two, I'd like to encourage you all to head over to the Patreon page that I've started for the podcast. You'll find it at patreon.com slash makers and shakers. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash makers and shakers. Many of you know about Patreon already, but for those who don't, it's a way for you, the listener, to kick in and support the show on a monthly basis rather than a one-time donation, even if it's as little as a buck a month. It's simple and secure. I'd like to quickly explain what the overhead is on a show like this. For regular listeners, you'll know that the show's unique content is not just an interview format, but music clips are also used to demonstrate what we talk about on the show. And that's what makes the show cool and different, but it's what also makes the show on the production side time consuming. The editing and everything involved on an absolute minimal basis takes us about four to six hours per episode, which I currently pay someone to do. Then there's the hosting of the files, the launching and promotion of each episode, which, while not extravagant, is just an expense that I can no longer really handle on my own. I love doing this podcast, and so I'm throwing it out there to you, my listeners, from over the last couple of years to help me by kicking in a little bit each month. As I said, even as little as a dollar a month would help. Um, There are some exclusive rewards that start happening at the $5 per month level and going up from there. And together we can keep the show going. So we're going to see how this Patreon campaign goes, and if we hit our goal over the next six weeks or come pretty close, we will know that there are enough people out there willing and able to keep making it happen, and we'll keep bringing it on for you. Once again, the site can be found at patreon.com slash makers and shakers. 
As always, you can also make a one-time donation if you'd rather at my website and the podcast home at stevedawson.ca. And we can also always use your help in spreading the word by leaving us a review or comments on the iTunes store podcast page. Thank you all for listening and supporting. All right, let's move on to today's episode. I had the great honor of speaking to Tommy Shannon, who's somebody I've admired for a long time. Growing up in the, well, the 80s, I guess, was the time when I started playing guitar, and um, I wasn't super keen on a lot of the music that was around in those days, but I did love me some Stevie Ray Vaughan. And one of my favorite bands was Double Trouble. I got to see them a bunch of times. And I have had Reese Winans on the show, the organ or the keyboard player from Double Trouble. Please go back and check that out five or six episodes back. Anyway, I got the opportunity to speak with Tommy Shannon, the bass player from the band. And when I was getting into the Steve Ray Vaughan albums when I was a kid, I was, you know, looking at the credits and some of the great session photos that are in some of the liner notes and album covers of of those records and Tommy was always a big part of that and then I remember picking up the the first Johnny Winter record at a garage sale or something maybe a flea market and there was Tommy Shannon on the back of that too and that was in the 60s so you know late 60s so he was a big part of Johnny Winter's band through the first three records which were amazing there was the Johnny Winter record and then Another one that came out after, but was actually recorded before, called The Progressive Blues Experiment. And uh, then there was Second Winter, which I always found very mysterious, because it was a double record, but it only had music on three sides. And there was a blank side. Very strange. Very cool. And so I had to ask him about that. Anyway, it was great to have this chance to talk to Tommy Shannon. He's, you know, he's an amazing blues bass player, and uh, he's written some killer riffs, which we get into today. Uh, unfortunately, I had a bit of technical issues with this one. Uh, you can't really tell. We've sort of edited them out. But around near the end, things started to go haywire. I don't know if his phone was running out of batteries or something was going wrong on my end. I don't know. Something happened. And we got cut off a couple times. So there's like, it kind of like ends a little quicker than I wanted it to. There was a couple things that I wanted to get into that I didn't get a chance to. But all that aside, um, this really meant a lot for Tommy to take some time and speak with me. Uh, about his history. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And now let's have a listen to my conversation with Tommy Shannon. Thanks so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Sure. I'd like actually to start maybe with something a bit more conceptual than just a straight-ahead question. Um, I know that you've had the good fortune to have some long-standing rhythm section relationships in your career, especially Chris Layton and Uncle John Turner. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the importance to you of, uh, of a section like that and, and what you like about each of those guys um, since you've played with them so many years and, and also on so many recordings, if you could talk a bit about both of those guys. Yeah, well, Uncle John and Chris both, um, besides being great drummers, after a while playing with him, 
it's kind of like you become one unit. You know, um, the more you play together, the more you, the tighter you get. And Uncle John and uh, and Chris were that way. You know, we first started playing together. You know, we had to adjust, but uh, after a while, you know, it worked out great. Was it something that you fell into kind of? quickly in in both those scenarios or was one like an easier drummer to fall in with or how did you find that they they compared as far as drummers from your perspective well they were both different drummers uh uncle john he uh uncle john taught me a lot he was like a teacher was he older than you yeah about two years older oh okay i met him in dallas 1967 we started playing together we became good friends and uh he's probably the best friend I ever had in my life. You know, he was he was a great drummer, and when him and I started playing together, it just happened quickly, you know, we started bonding as, as a rhythm section. And at that point in your career, how long had you been playing bass for when you first started playing with him? Uh, about a year. Okay, so you're pretty new to it, and, and you played guitar before that, right? Right. Yeah. And and so what was the what was the reasoning for you to pick up the bass all of a sudden? Was it was there suddenly an opening in a band that you felt you could fit into or did something draw you to the bass in particular? Well, we we had a band. I was playing guitar. Uh the band was called Rip Chords, you know, which was a bogus band, you know. We went out as a surf band, toured like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We we moved to Dallas. You know, I met Uncle John and uh, we were playing this band together, and one night the bass player didn't show up. And so I, I played... <laughs> okay, that old story. <laughs> yeah, and so I started playing bass, and I liked it, because, you know, I was always uh-huh. frustrated with the drummers. And uh, Okay. So it worked out where, uh, you know, our rhythm section became powerful. So it was kind of out of necessity then that you picked it up. Um, were there, like, had you listened to on recordings had you really focused on bass like i know that some influences for you were people like willie weeks and maybe you could talk a little bit about who really jumped out to you as as bass players that were influential in your playing well willie weeks was he's still my favorite bass player oh yeah yeah we became good friends and uh, <clears throat> i was playing in a band dallas called the new breed and uh he was playing the band called Les Watson and the Panthers. They'd play a set, and then we'd play a set, and they'd play a set, and we'd play a set. You know, went back and forth, and um, yeah. you know, I couldn't believe how good he was. Uncle John, and I used to go down <laughs> and and watch just to see him play. You know, he was unbelievable. Yeah. Probably had a, the biggest impact on me as any bass player I know. What was the band that he was playing in? What kind of band was that? It was a soul band. We're playing a lot of uh, Righteous Brothers and uh, 
Sam and Dave, Temptations, stuff like that. This would be in the in the mid '60s, like you moved to Dallas, kind of after high school, right? Right, in '66. Okay. So '66 and '67, uh, we played in Dallas in the NSO band. We changed the name of the band to the New Breed. Did you did you do any recordings with that group? No, we didn't. Unfortunately, it was a pretty good band. Around that time, I, I know you did do some recording, but perhaps that was a later band. Wh- which band would it have been when you first went into the studio? Do you remember? Well, it was with uh, Johnny Winter. Okay, so that was your first studio experience ever, was with Johnny? Yeah, well, we did. We played at this place called the Vulcan Gas Company here in Austin. And um, we went in one day, and in the daytime, and it was closed. We set up, set up our gear, and we recorded on a little reel-to-reel that was in a Coke box. And it had one mic overhead and vocal mic. That's all it had. And that became our first record. Uh, the Progressive Blues Experiment. Right, and I was very proud of that record. Awesome record, and I listened to that a lot when I was growing up. Uh, that was a big record for me, for sure. I was a, you know, I got into Johnny Winter and and kind of backtracked my way to find that record. I think I bought it in Europe or something when I was a kid, and and um, I remember reading the credits and seeing your name on it, and also uh, you know reading about the Vulcan gas plant. So was that just a nightclub that they that you recorded in, or was that, was it a studio of some sort? No, it was a club. You know, we went in daytime, you know, when nobody was there and just set up and recorded, recorded the whole record that one day um, on a real tiny reel to reel, two channels. And, you know, it, it came out really good. I'm really proud of that record. Yeah, it's killer. I love that album, too. Um, can you tell me a bit about how you wound up playing with Johnny? Like, I, I guess it was through Uncle John Turner, but could you tell me the story of how you first saw him and came to be in his band? Yeah, um, Uncle John and I were playing in Dallas in a band called The Young Lads. And Uncle John quit and moved to Houston, and I stayed in Dallas. And one night he came in with Johnny, and I'd never seen an albino. And... Uh, <laughs> Johnny looked like this Greek god, you know, the lights, and they asked him to sit in, he sat in, and the lights, colored lights on him and everything, you know, I'd never seen anything like that, you know, I thought, God, this guy's beautiful, and uh, <laughs> played his ass off and asked me if I wanted to join the band, I, and uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> I bet. So I moved to Houston, Yeah moved to Houston and we started playing together. Starved our ass off at first.
Uncle John and I would go down to this fried chicken place at night. Yeah. And all the batter, <laughs> batter that came off chicken, you know, they'd scoop into this big pail and we'd eat that batter. Because <laughs> yeah. we didn't have money enough to buy food. But we were happy doing what we were doing, you know, because it was unique. And uh, But it, it was real hard playing blues, getting the there, gig back. There just then. wasn't a demand for it in the clubs or but, what, um, what was hard about it? Well, there wasn't a demand for it, and uh, yeah, basically, there just wasn't a demand for it, and plus, nobody was doing what we were doing, you know, we were really um, on the outskirts, you know, we were playing something totally different than anyone else had done. Yeah, absolutely, and was Johnny, like, when you first met him, when he was, I don't know how old he would have been, maybe maybe you remember what, what his age would have been, but was he, like, you know, it seems like, to me already on his first album, his style was fully realized and he was already, you know, he was already a great slide player and he had all that stuff figured out. Was he like that the, f the first times that you encountered him as well or did it take him a while to sort of find his voice? Well, he got better as we played, but basically he was that good when I first met him. He could play a slide in like four different tunings. I believe that that is... It's unbelievable, you know, how good he was. You know, he, he he's probably the best slide player I've ever heard. Right. Really knew how to do it. I never heard slide before. In fact, I'd never heard blues. I never heard blues before because I grew up in uh, Dumas, Texas, yeah. a town up in uh, South Texas. Uh, there wasn't one black person in town. Ugh. You know, they weren't allowed to be there. Ugh. If they came through, they couldn't go in a restaurant and eat. They'd serve them out the back door. You know, that's how that's how far behind they were. What was around when you were a kid? Like, what were you exposed to musically? Was it all country and and uh, and pop and stuff, or what were you hearing? Well, uh, a lot of stuff I like. Like, I heard a lot of Sam Cooke, and I really I loved Sam Cooke and uh, Jimmy Reed. Okay, they played some of his stuff on the radio. Roy Orbison, yeah. you know, I really love Roy Orbison. You know, Buddy Holly and uh, uh, Little Richard and Chuck Berry. You know, I managed to get records from them. But as far as just blues itself, it wasn't until I moved to Dallas that I started hearing it. It wasn't until I yeah. started playing with Johnny that I really heard it. I remember Johnny had this, this record collection. It took up a whole wall. <laughs> and it started with the very beginning, like Peel Hollis, 
all country country blues all the way up into the the present and he sat me down one night and played all that stuff for me and explained it he was a bit of a collector then oh yeah definitely And um, after that night, you know, it's like I got it. I didn't have any problem playing blues after that. You know, that was my big awakening when he set me down and played all that stuff because I didn't know shit about blues. <laughs> Do you remember any, like from that particular time when you sat down with Johnny, do you remember hearing anything like a song or an artist that just totally blew your mind and maybe changed the way that you heard blues and music in general? Uh, God, all of them, you know. Um, Muddy Waters, especially in Howlin' Wolf. I got a black cat bone, I got a mojo too, I got the John the Conqueror, I'm gonna mess with you, I'm gonna make you good. Little Walter, all those old blues guys, you know, when I heard what they were doing, you know, I loved it and I realized how much of uh, soul music and rock and roll and all that came from blues. Yeah. The blues was totally. the basic roots of the rock and roll. After you kind of got that and, and you and, and the, the band played, was it just a trio, you and Uncle John and Johnny at that point? Yeah, just three of us. So you record the Progressive Blues Experiment, and that record kind of just went totally under the radar, right? Like it didn't, I don't think it even came out until later. Is that correct? Right. It didn't come out until we released our first Columbia record. Right, okay. And after we got a record contract and all that. And then this guy, Bill Josie, who uh, recorded the Progressive Blues Experiment, sold it to uh, Liberty United Artists Record Company. Mm -hmm. And they put it out at the same time, which confused people. You know, they didn't know which record was our first record. That's pretty sneaky. So uh, it kind of hurt our record sales. Right. That first Johnny Winter record, there was a lot of, there was a lot of maybe, I don't know if hype is the right word, but I know that... I know that Johnny was signed to Columbia with apparently what I, what is rumored to be the biggest advance given of all time. Um, what was going on to make that happen? Like, was was the blues resurgence and his thing just like a good meeting in time, or was there, you know, like what 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 did Clive Davis see in you guys that made him have so much faith in that project? Well, like you're saying, you know, blues was having a resurgence back then. And, uh, uh, yeah, Clive Davis saw what we were doing. He thought it could really be successful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was the biggest record contract. It's like $600,000 advance. Woo! And, uh, yeah, 
A lot of money. Yeah. Were you involved in that whole process? Was it was it treated like a band, or was Johnny sort of doing that on his own, and you guys were more treated as sidemen? What was the situation of that band at, at that time? Well, we were treated more like sidemen. Okay. The agreement we had had back when we were a trio was uh, whatever we made, Johnny would take fifty percent, and Uncle John and I'd split fifty percent. Okay. Which was fair. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But uh, when th- things got, you know, successful, uh, Johnny kind of backed out on that, you know, and and uh, we became just sidemen. treated relatively fairly did you feel or was there some animosity there as far as how you were compensated no you know we felt uncle john i felt like we should have been given more mm-hmm. than what we gave mm-hmm. you know we were given two thousand dollars a piece to make that which isn't very much money to make that first record no after we broke up oh my god <laughs> that's not really that good is it you know no it's not that good at all <laughs> oh man but um we played, we recorded the first Johnny Winter record on Columbia and then the second winter. Yeah. So, and it was after that that we broke up. Right. So if, if we just look at that first Johnny Winter record for a sec, which for me was a big record, um, and uh, I love the sound of it, and um, you know, the, the horn section is, is killer. It's, very, it's kind of traditional in a way. Can you tell me a few things of what you remember about that actual session for that record and kind of how it went down and and if you have any favorite tracks or moments from that recording? Uh, it was my first time in a recording studio, really. So that was all new to me, you know. I, you know, I, I knew so little about recording, you know. It was like a real education. Right. But I remember, uh, you know, Willie Dixon and... And uh, these other people, you know, that came in, just how the whole thing took place. You know, it, it was like a growing process while we were in the studio. You know, we, we, we started listening to what we were doing and found ways to improve on it. Were you pretty much recording it live, kind of set up like you would for a gig, or was it done differently than that? It was done differently. It was, um, you know, Johnny was in the isolation booth, and Uncle John and I were... Um, out one room with, um, you know, separated, you know, then they brought in Edgar. Oh yeah. Right. He played on that. Yeah. So it was basically a studio set up, but just my honest opinion, uh, I wasn't crazy about that first Columbia record. I didn't think it was, it was near as good as the progressive blues experiment. A lot of that was because we were used to the studio. Right. So you, and, um, did you feel a little uncomfortable and kind of out of place at that point in the studio? No, I got used to it pretty quick. You know, I had a learning curve there, but, uh, you know, once I figured out what was going on, you know, I became comfortable with it. Yeah, hey, life. 
but uh, we put in too much effort, you know, too much. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Finesse on it. And, okay. Yeah, it was. It, it didn't. I didn't like it as much as Progressive Blues Experiment. Um, do you remember the session? Like Willie Dixon and, and Shaky Horton play on that record. Uh, I think maybe just on one song. Were you around for that? Do you remember seeing those guys play? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I love Willie Dixon yeah. and uh, and uh, just watching him. You know, just like was a, a real treat. You know, it was great. Back when I was playing with Johnny at the Vulcan Gas Company, mm -hmm. we played there like every two weeks. We'd play there. Yeah. And uh, one night we opened for Muddy Waters. We at the end of his set, we opened for him. At the end of his set, we uh, all got up and jammed. So I got jammed with Muddy Waters. Oh I my couldn't God. believe it. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's like uh, you don't really understand it until you play with them live. Then uh, you have a deeper appreciation of the music. Just a just a deep deep groove, eh? Yeah, yeah. It's like hearing him for the first time. Were him and Johnny tight at that point? Like, had they met and played together, or was that sort of like the first experience Johnny had had with him as well? It was the first experience Johnny had. You know, he, him and Muddy Waters hit it off right away. Uh, Johnny loved Muddy Waters. Yeah. So did I. Yeah. In my opinion, Muddy, Muddy Waters and Hal Wolf were. Uh, main fathers of rock and roll absolutely you know, they were the first to get up there and get up there with the electric amps and um really play loud you know and just did so many things that you kind of hear in rock and roll today yeah was willie dixon you know as a as a songwriter and a and an artist he was a great influence on a lot of people but did you find him a an influence on the bass and the way that he approached as a player as well yeah, oh yeah, definitely. You know, I love the way he played. Mm -hmm. um, I listened to him a lot. You know, he played upright bass, uh, which, you know, I've never done. But uh, yeah, I love watching him play. You know, real nice guy. And just fell, fell into the groove real comfortably. So how did that how did that experience with the the first Columbia one how did it differ from Second Winter which is kind of more of a rock record and and Edgar Winter had sort of more of a presence on it uh, did you feel okay about Second Winter and and how was it approached differently from the outset as a as a project uh, Well, it's approached pretty much the same same studio hmm. um, 
uh, different engineer and producer. Eddie Kramer produced some of it, and we let him go and finished it ourselves. But I was a lot happier with Second Winter. You know, okay. there was a lot. And plus, it was the first three-sided record. You know, we just ran out of material. <laughs> was that all the three-sided? Was that all that was about? Was you, There was just like, you had more than enough to put on one record and just not enough to fill up to four sides? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have a record. Uh, I don't know if you've heard it. It was uh, recorded live at Royal, Royal Albert Hall. Uh, and uh, it's Edgar, Edgar, Johnny, and Uncle John and myself. I don't think I've heard that one. And, uh, oh, it's great. It came out on a reissue of uh, Second Winter oh, okay. about 10 years ago. Okay. And uh, it, it had the Second Winter record in there, plus live at Monto, I mean, excuse me, live at Royal Albert Hall. And uh, if you get a chance to listen to it, it's really incredible. The live show is really great. When you heard that back, maybe ten years ago or whatever, were you like that was that was really what that band sounded like more than the records, maybe? Right, absolutely. That's why you, if you get a chance, you should listen to it. I mean, it was really tight and aggressive. I think what we were doing gave the blues a resurgence. You know, we were the first trio white band to uh, play blues, and people loved it. And that. that made it easier to put all the old blues guys, you know, they they got a, a boost out of it too. Yeah, totally. People listened to us and realized what our roots were and they went back and uh, checked out all the old blues too, which, yeah. you know, helped, helped all those guys. Yeah. Same thing happened with Stevie, you know, blues had kind of died out, you know, we were a trio and we came Yeah, up. you guys kind of gave it some new life yet, yet again. Yeah. Exactly. Um, now, instrument-wise, around that time, you're sort of known for playing that that white jazz bass that's sort of beat up and stuff. Was that uh, were, were you playing that back then? Have you had that instrument from day one, or were you playing something else? No, I was playing the jazz bass. Um, I, I bought that in 1966 oh. for 125 dollars, and uh, yeah, now it's worth a shitload of money. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jimi Hendrix played it. Everybody's played it. You know, Johnny played it. Stevie played it. Uh, got a bunch of people. Willie Weeks played it. Uh, Do you still play that bass? Yep, play it. That's my main bass. You know, as I went every now and then, now and then I go in this circle. You know, where uh, they'll give me these basses free. Yeah. You know, and custom made basses and um, other basses. And uh, I go in a circle, and I try all of them. You know, I like them, but I always come back to the old jazz. Yeah, man. I finally realize that nothing sounds better than that. You know, no custom made, nothing sounds better than that old jazz. Yeah. It's just a piece of, piece of wood with 
uh, plain old pickups and the uh, same bridge. You haven't really touched it or modified it since the since the first days. No, not at all. Awesome. It's beat all. It's beat all to hell. But <laughs> that's good. That's, you know, that's what it, gives it, it the mojo, man. Yeah, it does. It's <laughs> definitely got the mojo. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about, like, I, I know with with Johnny, you played at Woodstock, and that for you know for my generation that that happened before I was born, and uh, you know Woodstock is sort of this iconic moment, and you guys are captured there. I'm just wondering, like, from a musician's perspective. How was that experience for you? Was it, you know, I've heard kind of nightmares about about how it was run and getting on and off the property. I'm just wondering if you had uh, any good or bad memories about that experience playing Woodstock. Well, I had both. You know, we couldn't get there by automobile. We had to come in these uh, little bubble helicopters. Uh, I remember looking from the sky down at the crowd and it was unbelievable. Yeah. I couldn't believe that many people were in one place. But it rained, and it was muddy as hell, and bands were like 12 hours behind, you know? <laughs> like, supposed, supposed to play at 1, one in the afternoon, you didn't get on until 1 in the morning. Oh, my God. But, uh, you know, it was real poorly run. People, uh, first people were paying to get in, finally, uh, they just, tore the fence down you know everybody just started coming in and uh it ended up being a mess but all in all i'd say it was a great experience it was really good when you know, I, I enjoyed it when you were actually up on stage was it okay and the sound was good and and it felt like a, a good solid show or was it a bit of a gong show as far as like the sound was crappy and all that as well the sound was crappy it was eh? okay <laughs> yeah it was really crappy crappy <laughs> one thing um i when we uh first started playing you know big shows we went out and bought all these big amps i had like six sun 2000s holy shit but three heads and uh johnny bought all these tender amps yeah we were so hit we were hicks from texas yeah and we were unaware that they had you know uh pa system <laughs> right that they were you know pushing the music out front. We thought, well, we're playing in front of thousands of people, so we better get big amps. through the PA, but we thought we just had to play loud so we'd reach all those people. Was the volume on stage like unbearably loud at that point? Yeah, it was real loud. Uncle John had to nail his drums down because <laughs> oh the bass rig, vibra- bass rig would vibrate him off. Oh my God, that's crazy. Did that ever evolve into a kind of thing where you could scale it down to reasonable volumes or was it just loud all the time? We played pretty loud. It, it went down from there. You know, we didn't play as loud. But, uh, we were a loud band. You know, it's kind of like the same thing with uh, Stevie. Um, it was kind of like a rock, rock and roll blues. Yeah, yeah. Instead of laid back blues, you know, we were playing uh, 
real aggressive blues, you know, more in a more rock and roll yeah. style blues. Totally. When your time with Johnny came to an end, that was probably in, I don't know, 69 or 70. Was Were you just kind of sick of it and you had to leave or was there a, a split for some reason or what happened that, that, that caused that particular group to disband? Well, Johnny wasn't really a good songwriter and neither was Uncle John myself. But uh, the McCoys, which was Rick Derringer and Randy Joe Hobbs and uh, those guys... Um, we lived upstate New York, and um, our manager was Steve Paul. And uh, the McCoys practiced about 100 yards down this other little house. And, uh, you know, we got to go here, then practice, and they'd come here, us practice. And they were writing songs, so Johnny gravitated more towards them. And Steve Paul talked Johnny into going to let us go and um, start playing with the McCoys. That's when it becomes Johnny Winter and. So when you waggle the thing, it really knocks me out. You're getting high all the time, but if you're not there too. Come on, a little closer, gonna do it to you. Yeah, rock and roll, hoochie coo. And so they, they probably saw it as a way to, to have some hit material or something and, and sell more records probably too, right? Which uh, they did, you know, they yep. had um, Johnny Winter in, you know, they had some more commercial type stuff on there. They sure did. And uh, Johnny kind of drifted away from his roots, you know, doing more uh, melodic music. Yeah. It's strange after all these years, you know, people... Uh, they talk about Johnny Winter. They talk about those first three records, you know, the Progressive Blues Experiment and the two Columbia records. They were the best, man. Like he made some cool records, and you know, of course, like the Muddy Water stuff in the '80s was cool too. But, but really, for for me as a as a guitar fan and as a music fan, those records were pretty iconic. Yeah, they were. So suddenly, you're free of that situation, and it's like early 1970 or early 70s, and then of course we pick up your career, I don't know exactly when you started playing with Stevie, I guess it was 79 or 80. What happened in between those years? Like, that's a big chunk of time. What were you doing? Well, after we left Johnny, Uncle John started a band called uh, Cracker Jack. Right. It was really a good band, a real good. We were the biggest band in Texas uh, up until ZZ Top came out. Were you based out of Dallas then? Uh, no, we were living in Austin. Oh, okay. What we did when we broke up with Johnny, we moved, we got these guys together, uh, Bruce Boland and uh, Mike Kindred and Jesse Taylor, and we moved up to Monterio, California, which is about 50 miles from uh, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, uh, we practiced there and played a couple of gigs in San Francisco, but we couldn't get hardly any work, so we moved up and came back to Austin. I remember we were drawing unemployment. Oh yeah, you know because yeah. uh, we didn't have any money left. You know, out of the two thousand dollars we got, right? Severance pay. Yeah, Johnny was haunted by that. You know, he all those years he felt bad that he only gave us two thousand dollars. Well, but um, 
back, back to your question, uh, yeah, Cracker Jack was a great band. It was more of a Led Zeppelin kind of band, but, but we didn't copy Led Zeppelin. We had our own unique style. We recorded the record. I've got a record here we have. We never put it out on a label or anything, but it's really good. studio about 10 years ago and uh and uh, recorded the record you know we got back together oh cool we broke up in 1970 yeah uh got back together and did a record and it turned out great wicked so i do have a, a an album of cracker jack but i met stevie in the same club i met johnny really and uh yeah it's when i was playing cracker jack Actually, it was, no, it was before that. Actually, we flew back when we were playing with Johnny Winter. We flew back to Dallas because Dallas was our old stomping ground. Yeah. Moved back to Dallas for a few weeks. And uh, we went back to this club, The Fog, where we played with uh, the new breed and young lads and all that. I was telling you yeah. that. I remember walking into the same club I met Johnny Winter in. And uh, I was standing outside talking to some old friends, and I heard this guitar playing. <laughs> and I thought, who the hell is that? <laughs> and I walked inside, and there's this little kid, 15-year-old kid, playing his ass off. You know, I couldn't believe it. And I knew right away, this guy's special. Yeah. You know, I had no doubt he was going somewhere. And him and I, <clears throat> we talked that night and became good friends. You know, we had the same ideas about life and spirituality. and Even as a kid? Yeah, even as a kid, you know, and he was, uh, it was strange, he was so humble, you know, he looked up to all the older musicians. He didn't realize he was already better than most of us. And then when Cracker Jack broke up, him and I got in a band called uh, Blackbird. Oh, okay. And we played together for a while. That was in Austin or in Dallas? In Austin, after we moved to Austin. Mm -hmm. That was a really good band, too. What happened to that band? It just didn't didn't last? Yeah, it broke up. And uh, we put together a, another version of Cracker Jack, which Stevie played in. We did that for a while, and then we broke up. And... Uh, that's about the time I got busted, you know, for drugs. I, I was real strung out. You know, I got in real bad shape, and I got busted and put on probation. 
uh, came up dirty, urine specimens put in jail. Oh, man. I went in and out of jail three times, you know, like 60 days at a time. And the halfway house is three times, um, four and a half months each. They put me on a a farm out in Buda, Texas, where I spent over a year. Wow. And uh, treatment programs, you know, just took a good four years out of my life. Uh-huh. And I, I lost touch with all my musician friends. Was that sort of a product of, like, was there a lot of drugs and, and stuff like that going around the Austin scene then? And just by being out at nightclub, yeah. Yeah, except I got really strung out, you know. Have nobody to blame but myself. But, uh, you know, I'm a probationary folk. I had 10 years probation and, um, and they revoked it three times, but they didn't put me in prison. They just gave me jail time. Yeah. It seems like it's a bit of a theme with the Austin crowd. Like Keith Ferguson was pretty messed up too. And, um, you know, was, was it, was it a big thing with, with musicians in Austin? There was just a lot of drugs around. Yeah, it was, it was, um, just about all of us got strung out on something, you know. I just happened to get busted. Through those years when you when you lost touch, um, uh, after you sort of came back into the scene, was it easy to jump back in? And did you hook up right away with with players and and things like that from the Austin scene? No, it wasn't. Um, actually, after I got through doing all my time, I went out and laid brick and rock for two years. Oh shit! I got. Yeah, I got to be really good at it, too. I was a really great brick and rock layer. Really? Uh, but I was so miserable, you know, because all I could think about was playing music. And I remember one day I was working with my uh, cousin, who was an older man, and uh, he taught me my trade, mm-hmm. you know, playing brick and rock. And one day I laid my trowel down on the job, and I said, I can't do this anymore. I've got to go back playing music. And I put down my trowel, walked off the job. And that was it. And started hunting for gigs. And I, you know, I couldn't find gigs. Nobody had had me because of my past. Uh, you had sort of a reputation at that point of, of being kind of fucked up and, and people didn't want to hire you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. So uh, I starved my ass off for a while. You know, I was driving a little 66 Volkswagen Rabbit. And um, I had my jazz bass and uh, acoustic 360 bass, bass amp. You know, it, it was really hard there for a while. I was sleeping on people's, people's couches and didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. And then Rocky Hill called Dusty Hill's brother, ZZ Top. Yep. He, he called him and Uncle John. We're playing together in Houston. And they called me up and asked me to come play. And I, you know, I said, yeah. And I moved to Houston and uh, started playing with them. Oh, cool. And and so what led to hooking up again with, with Steve Ray Vaughan? Was he looking for a band or something? Or like, I, I know Triple Threat was kind of happening at that point. What, what happened that made you hook up with him again? Well, um, when, I, when I moved to Houston, you know, I played with Rocky for a while and I met up with this guy, Alan Haynes. Mm-hmm. Uh, really good guitar player, great singer, um, real Johnny Winterfried, you know, so we hit it off as friends right away and he wanted me to play in his band. So I quit Rocky Hill and started playing with Alan Haynes and we played together for a while. And, um, I remember, um, it was in the paper that 
Stevie Ray Vaughan Double Trouble, or Stevie Vaughan, that's before he's Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right. Stevie Vaughan and uh, Double Trouble were playing at this club called, um, oh God, what was the name of it? Rockefellers. And I thought, well, I'll go out and hear my old buddy, you know, and talk to him, see how he's doing. Had you kept in touch with him at all in the, through that, that whole time, or not really? No, no, we've gone our separate ways, you know, when I got busted. Yeah. Me and everybody had gone our separate ways. Yeah, sounds like it. But um, I remember I almost didn't go. I thought, well, I'm tired. I guess I'll go. And I went, yeah, I'll go ahead and go. And I walked in and heard him playing. And it was like a, a spiritual experience, you know, this, like this beam of light. Just that's where I belong, right there. That's where I belong. And I knew beyond a doubt, I knew beyond a doubt that's where I play. I need to, I need the band I need to be in. And uh, they took a break and I went up to Stevie, you know, and I told him, man, I belong in this band. <laughs> and uh, two weeks later, they played there again. I did the same thing, you know, I went, I belong in this band, man. We jammed and it sounded great. And so uh, a few weeks later, he called me and asked me to play with him. And so I played with him. That's when the whole thing started. So had he fired his bass player or had his bass player quit or something? No, he let the bass player go and hired me. Awesome. And was Chris Layton in the fold at that point or did he come along after you? No, Chris Layton was already playing with him. Oh, okay. Did it take you guys a, a while to gel as a, as a three-piece and sort of figure out what kind of direction you want? Or was it just like getting on stage and things just came together really fast? Well, it was kind of tough at first. You know, really, Chris and I didn't really fit together as a rhythm section at first. But, um, you know, it didn't take us very long to kind of find that magic. You know, that's what it is, magic, when a rhythm section really bonds. Yeah, it's man. almost like instinctive. You know what the, you know what the other, other guy's going to do before he even does it, you know, and you go in. Hit right on time, you know. But at first, you know, we were... We were better than what he had before, but, you know, it was a little bit of a struggle, but it didn't take long. We became a really kick-ass band. And was he bringing some of the material from the first record into the set at that point, or were you just kind of playing all kinds of stuff? Yeah, yeah, we were doing it. You know, we kidded it around, but it was true. You know, we had all our lives to do the first right. record. And the se second record, we had to come to something new, <laughs> you know. 
Um, now that first record, I, I think from what I remember is you recorded it at Jackson Brown's place. How did that come about? Right. Well, we, uh, uh, Jerry Wexler heard a tape of us and, uh, talked to this guy, Clyde Knobs that, uh, uh, pretty much ran the, uh, Montreux Jazz right. Festival. And uh, they called us up and asked us to come over there and play this before anybody knew who we were. Yeah, I've got a record. I've I've got and, the record um, of that performance, and that was the that was yeah. the one where you guys felt like you were getting booed off stage and all that, right? Yeah, yeah, it broke our heart. Oh. And it's strange, you know, uh, we got booed, and that was the first Grammy we won. Was off that night. <laughs> So sometimes what seems to be a tragedy turns out to be a blessing. So you were you were brought in to play the Montreux Jazz Festival uh, before you made any records, and was Jackson Brown there and saw you guys or something, or what happened with the connection with him? Yeah, after we played, and, and Jackson Brown played, uh, and David Bowie was there, and uh, we went, went downstairs to this club and just jammed all night, never even took a break. Um doing a lot of cocaine, oh, yeah. of course. And um, we just jammed. And uh, Jackson Brown really liked us uh, and offered us his studio, you know, for three days. So we went in and did the first first, uh, first day we did uh, eight songs. Wow. And we came in the second day and did the rest wow. of them. But we came back to Austin to put the vocals on. Oh, okay. So you did it just with scratch vocals, and then and then he redid them. Was yeah. he not a terribly confident singer at that point? No, he's pretty confident. So that was done before you had any kind of record deal on the table or anything. You just did it because you had this opportunity to record. Right. Exactly. And how did John Hammond how and did John Hammond get involved in that? Was he sort of overseeing the process or was he not involved in the recording at all? Well, he heard the tape that Jerry Wexler had. Okay. I don't I I think Jerry Wexler sent it to him, I'm not sure. But uh, uh he heard it and uh, right away, you know, uh, said this is band, you know, really go places. So uh, Epic signed us. They did it on his word. They didn't think we were going to do anything because we were playing blues. Right. So they just kind of threw the record out there without any promotion or anything. And uh, it started selling by word of mouth. Yeah. You know, there was people that I was aware of 
in in the Canadian record industry that they they told me that that record also like was was probably more successful in Canada than it was uh, in the States at first too. Like, were you touring internationally and in Canada as well? Yeah, we were touring all over, mm-hmm. you know, before, before our record came out, we were tra- traveling around the country in a milk truck <laughs> and we had a bed, we had a um, couch in the back yeah. and um, our equipment right behind that. And we had a rigged up bed on top, you Perfect. know, we get up there on top to sleep every time you hit the brakes. Go flying. So, you know, we didn't have any, we didn't have any luxury at all. Just the three of you, or did you have a, a tech or a tour guy with you at all, or was it just the three of you? We had one tour okay. guy. So that record came out on Epic and and had very little promotion, but it did. I mean, it sold a ton of copies and was really successful. But but that must have been a slower process, I guess. Yeah, it was. Um, I'll never forget. You know, when we realized our record was doing something. You know, we we're tra- like I say traveling around the milk truck, <laughs> and uh, there's this club. Um, in uh, California, I can't remember the name of it. We played there like three times. We get a crowd, maybe 50 people. And we w- went to play there again, and there was a line of people all the way around the block to get in. That must have happened a lot. And our first inst- yeah, the first instinct was, uh, who else is playing? <laughs> you know, drawing all these people. And uh, then we realized it was for us, you know, and that's when we realized our record was doing something. And uh, Epic j- jumped on it then and started promoting it. Yeah, I bet. So it was starting to get airplay, like, just on... Well, at first it was word of mouth, you know. People, you know, they just love the record, you know, and a uh, few people heard it, and they turned their friends on to it, and they, uh, it just kind of blossomed. He followed her to school one day And broke the teacher's rules What a time did they have That day at school So when you recorded that first record, if it was like a really loud session as well? Well, it was loud, not as loud as we were live, you know, uh-huh. playing a gig. You know, because when you're in the studio, you have to adjust volumes so we can hear each other and all that. So we went yeah. through that. But uh, um, we still played like we did live, except not quite as loud. When you did songs like maybe like Pride and Joy or something for that, like that, for example, you know, that kind of became like a radio hit. I don't know if it actually was a, a hit or not, but I mean, it, for me as a kid, when that record started getting airplay and I started hearing you for the first time, it was like really a mind boggling kind of something totally different. Uh, did it feel like you guys were 
doing something that was blues, but still like crossed over the, the boundaries? Or did you just feel like you were playing blues like you always did? Well, uh, both, you know, we knew we were stepping, you know, out of the boundaries. But at the same time, you know, we felt like we were keeping our roots. Was the label offering any input or anything? Or I, I guess not, because you guys did it without any label input. But as as things progressed and you started actually selling records, and the label started paying attention to you, and and I, probably discussions were coming up about doing the second record. Uh, was there any pressure on you on you guys to go in any different directions to make it more like commercial or anything like that? No, not really, because we wouldn't allow the record company in the building. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Uh, you know, we we knew what we wanted to do, and uh, John Hammond, when we did, couldn't stand the way John Hammond produced it. So was he and, was uh, he actually there and kind of uh, hands on as far as the material and the performances? Oh yeah, yeah. It's really strange, I man. I love John Hammond. You know, he's one of the greatest producers, and and you know, he's discovered so many people. Yeah, it's incredible. Do you remember any songs in particular where that would have happened? God, I can't remember. Lenny, maybe? Okay. stand the weather there was also like you guys were still playing blues but you know that like the song couldn't stand the weather was not really blues it had that crazy awesome guitar riff that was so different and unusual were you guys working on the songs like from from a band like really trying to make them something different as well well we kind of went in with an open mind you know couldn't stand the weather that riff yeah Actually, I came up with that. Oh, wicked. Yeah, it was a little, little different timing. Stevie did like 
one, two, three, four, da, 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 da. And I, the way I came up with it was like, one, two, three, four, one, da, 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 da. Oh, so you're feeling it in a different spot. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I came up with that riff. And then when that record came out, uh, that did like quite well out of the gate, right? Like suddenly you guys were big and you were playing big shows, and and there was probably some some actual substantial promotional money put behind it and things like that. Did it feel different uh, when the second record came out? Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, yeah, because we'd already had some success, and you know it it even made us more successful. Yeah, and uh, you know we got to playing bigger places and got to travel in a bus by then, you know. That's nice. So some of the perks were coming into play and it was probably good for everybody and felt like you were progressing. Yeah, free cocaine. <laughs> yeah, so when did when did all the when did the drugs and the and all that stuff start catching up with you guys again? Was it more like around the next album when you were doing Soul to Soul around that time or was it just kind of Yeah. Okay. And was it just yeah, it was. just kind of the rigors of being on the road that drove you guys to those depths that were kind of famously talked about? Well, it was both, really. I mean, even when we got home, we were still doing a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, Stevie and I never had a hangover uh, because we never stopped. You know, the other guys didn't really have a problem with it. Chris or Reese didn't have a problem with it, but uh, well, Stevie and I did. Uh, I remember uh, the night when uh, Stevie broke down. You know, we were in Germany, and uh, we were in we were in a room just hanging out, and uh, Stevie just turned white. Oh man! You know, and he had been puking up blood. Oh. That's when he broke down. I was right after that, you know, that I went through the same thing. We went to treatment centers yeah. and I got sober at the same time. Right. So that was like, you guys just hit this wall and you're like, shit, we got to do something or this whole thing's going to fall apart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was it easy for you? I mean, you'd been playing like under the influence of Coke and whatever else for years. Was it, was it a, a freaky thing when you, like you did, you went and got clean, you, 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 um, you know, changed your life. Was it, uh, and, but it didn't take very long, right? Like it was only a few months that you were away and then you were back at it. How was that experience like playing clean and sober for, for probably, you know, as, as long as you could have remembered at that point? Uh, Steve and I both were really kind of scared. I remember looking out the curtains 
and seeing these thousands of people out there. And I, you know, I went, oh, shit, I, I need a drink. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was scary. It was really scary. You know, once I got out there, you know, I was scared. But after a while, you know, fear went away and I felt real comfortable. But, it, you know, it took some adjusting. It really did. But the main thing is we started playing better than we'd ever played. Yeah, it sure seems that way. Like by the time Instep came out, like Instep is like a whole nother level of like a focused band yeah yeah that's the best record we did i think so too yeah like and it definitely had a huge commercial impact as well and um do you remember spending more time on that record than you had on other records or was it kind of a quick process as well it was about the same as the other ones So none of them were really long, drawn-out records then? They were all kind of done, like, within a week or so? No, it took us two weeks, something like that, to do each one. And you were involved in some of the writing, too, in InStep, right? Was it Crossfire or... Um... Yeah, yeah, I came up with that riff. I came up with that. That's a killer riff too. Were you guys writing other songs like like with Tightrope and things like that? Were, were those things that you were coming up with as a band, or were they just complete songs that Stevie was bringing to the table? Well, we we introduce ideas in those songs. Yeah, but uh, Stevie took the the writing credit. And and a tune like say like Riviera Paradise that you mentioned before, um, that's kind of a departure for you guys. Was that something that was tricky to wrap your head around in the studio or was that kind of like were you playing some of that kind of stuff live or it just seems like it's a a whole different kind of trip how did that fit into the picture of 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 you guys as a band well we really loved doing it you know because it was so different yeah and it was real jazzy but uh we do it live sometimes you know oh you did okay yeah and uh but having it on the record is a real departure from the other song, uh-huh. you know, which gave more volume to the record. So we, we like doing that song. final years it seemed like you guys were 
um, you know, like I, I remember seeing you like with Joe Cocker and Jeff Beck and you were suddenly playing like huge stadiums and things like that. Was that an evolution that you felt good about, like playing in these huge places or did you guys kind of miss playing some of the smaller clubs and venues that you'd been playing throughout your career? Oh, we liked playing for big <laughs> crowds, you know, that was, we loved it. I remember the the first big crowds we played with, we opened for the Moody Blues, that was the first big uh-huh. band we opened for. And um, that's right after Texas Flood came out. We we got up there and played, and people went uh-huh. ape shit. They loved it, you know. And uh, I remember that tour really because that was the first time we really played in front of a big big audience, you know, thousands of people. So it was something that you guys were shooting for, and you felt good about, like later in the in in your career, when you were playing regularly in those huge stadiums. Yeah, that's cool. And then, yeah. and and the last tour, were you guys on tour with Eric Clapton? Is that what was happening at that point? No, we just played a couple of shows with him. Um, you know, we were playing. We toured the Allman Brothers, played with them for a while, and uh, you know, different bands. And on the final night, when when you guys played, there was a big blowout with with Robert Cray and Jimmy Vaughn was there, of course, and and Clapton was there. Do you remember? much about that night uh as far as the performance goes and did it feel like there was some finality to it or was it just like a show and then then all that shit happened well um i felt that this this ease i didn't know what it was about or anything you know it's kind of intuitive i guess that uh something wasn't right you know but uh i mean that's just regarding Mm -hmm. stevie's death but as far as the show goes, that was one of our best really? shows ever. Yeah, yeah, it was. Stevie was screaming out of his <laughs> guitar. He was just really tearing it up. It was one of the best shows we played. Well, with all those players around, he must have felt, yeah, like I think Buddy Guy was there too. He must have felt like really fired up to be playing with all his, all his yeah, friends he and was. all his friends and brother and all that. That's amazing. Yeah. So you say you felt some disease. Like, did you feel like really like after the show that something was was wrong and and not going the way that it should or something? Yeah, not not as far as the music goes. Just kind of a premonition that something was wrong, and which turned out to mm-hmm. be Stevie's death. After that happened, and after that night, did it did it take you a long time to get back into playing? Like, I, I know the Archangels happened within probably a couple of years, but was it, was it like something that you were just so devastated about that it was hard to get back into the, into the act of playing music? Oh yeah. It was real hard for me. You know, I stayed, I stayed in the house for two weeks, you know, I'd go down to Seven Eleven, you know, and just, I didn't want to talk to anybody, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't answer the phone or gradually, I, you know, I started to go back Antones, which is a big club in Austin, you probably heard of it. Sure, of course. And I would sit in; it'd, it'd feel good, you know. But you know, it was so far away from what we were doing with Stevie, and I was real depressed. But the more I played, the better mm-hmm. I felt. You know, I just it helped me uh, kind of start wanting to play yeah. again. For a while, I didn't even want to play. You know, I just. You know, it was like life was over for me, it seemed like. But I uh, started playing again, and then gradually uh, the Archangels happened.
then after that Storyville happened. Chris and I did a lot of studio that was work. Cool record. Yeah. In in the last um, ten years or so, have you have you been playing? Do you still live in Austin? Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you get out around town and stuff, or do you kind of mostly uh, like do you go out to to see bands and 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 play with people a lot in the on the scene, or do you kind of keep a low profile, or what's your what what's your preference these days? Well, I'm semi-retired, which which means I've got my own band. Um, it's a Tommy Shannon Blues Band, and it's a real good okay. band. But I'm just doing it for fun. You know, I'm not doing it to try to become successful or yeah. you know draw thousands of people or anything like that. I'm just doing it for fun, which is the way I started out when I was a kid. Started playing. Yeah, I go out and sit in, and I hear bands. But uh, I'm a lot more laid back now. You know, I just I, I like my isolation. <laughs> well, you know, I like my solid solitude. You've you've earned it, man. Like you've been through it all, right? Yeah, like, like more than once. Yep. So, and there's no there's no talk of doing more Archangels or anything. Is that project kind of done as far as you're concerned? Yeah, it's done. Yes. Yeah, Way too many reunions. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And it seems like like that that record as there's some really cool stuff on it, but it it does seem like there there's a lot of different artistic visions pulling in different directions. Was that something that you felt with that band as well? Absolutely. Uh, that band was. Uh, uh, I loved it. I thought it was a great band, but I wasn't very happy in that band. You know, it was uh, a band of ego clashing. You know, I didn't have problems with the other three guys. I don't want to say anything bad about them, you know, but it just wasn't a happy band at all. Yeah, I saw you guys in Vancouver. I'm from Vancouver, and I I saw you, I don't know what year it would have been, but it kind of seemed like that. There there wasn't a lot of joy on stage, but there was a lot of great music going on, and maybe that kind of contributed from a musical point, having having some differing opinions and, and, and things like that. But it's hard to make a band like that last, I guess. Yeah, it is. Well, um, I won't take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you talking to me today about this stuff, man. It, it's it's an honor to talk to you, and and I'm just uh, a real fan of of all the music that you've made, and and uh, wanted to kind of get some of uh, some stories out there. And uh, thank you very I much. Really appreciate, man. And uh, I hope we get to see you play one of these days. But um, I also appreciate that you've earned some some. Uh, isolation and and quiet times and and uh, all the power to you for that well thank you man i appreciate it too all right folks that was my conversation with tommy shannon Thanks so much for listening. Head on over to iTunes, leave a rating, leave some comments, and we'll see you next week for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.
Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 